0: Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, he will dwell with them, and they will be with his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. Let's skip down to verse 22. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Let's read the following five verses, chapter 22. And then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit,
1: Good morning. My name is Bill Smith. I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Mainline. I'd like to add my welcome to you this morning, whether you are a long-term member of Renewal or if this is your first time visiting with us, we are really glad that you chose to celebrate Easter with us this morning. Now, obviously, the point of Easter is that it's the resurrection of Christ. It points us forward to not only think about his resurrection, but also what's coming in the future for us, the life after death. It's very hard, however, to talk about life after death in the West because you first have to talk about death and that's not something that we really like to do. You've probably heard Benjamin Franklin's adage that there are two unavoidable realities in life. There's death and there's taxes. And I would bet an awful lot, actually I'd probably bet everything that I have, that you have spent far more time thinking and talking about taxes than you've ever spent thinking and talking about death. And part of that is because you live in the modern world. We don't talk about death. We don't think about it. We don't bring it up in our conversations. We've pushed it to the side, both physically and philosophically. So it's just not part of our world. We push it aside physically. We don't see it. We go to the supermarket and what do we find? We find meat that's wrapped up behind cellophane wrappers, very tidy, very pretty, very neat. And we don't even think about where that meat came from. We don't see the reality of death. When people approach the later stages of their life, typically they're no longer living at home with us, but they are moved into a nursing home or even to a a hospice. We don't see the reality of death. We don't see this reality that is more certain than taxes because we've pushed it out of our world physically. When it does intrude physically, we then push it away philosophically. We tell each other, oh, it's just a natural part of the life cycle. Disney did this brilliantly in The Lion King They talked about it as being the circle of life. And if you saw that movie, you may remember how the young lion cub Simba wants to know, how is it that everything can be in balance? That's what his father's been telling him. But Simba's curious, how can everything be in balance when we, the lions, eat the antelopes? Kind of looks like we're on the top of the food chain. His father Mufasa responds, yes Simba, but let me explain. When we die, we lions, when we die, our bodies become the grass and the antelopes eat the grass. And so we are all connected in this great circle of life. In other words, Mufasa is saying to his son, death is no big deal, just something normal, something to be explained away, something to be handled philosophically, nothing to worry about. As modern people, we've worked very hard to banish death from life. And now we find ourselves in a very curious historical moment when death keeps intruding when we can't avoid it any longer. This virus that's been running throughout the globe has taken death from the periphery and put it right at the center so that it's one of the things that we are constantly aware of. We talk about it, we read about it, we spend time thinking about it. And suddenly we've discovered that death is no longer as abstract as it once was. Doesn't seem as inconsequential. It's fair to say as a society we're terrified of catching this virus. Now, why is that? Why don't we just shrug that off? Why don't we just say, yeah, you know, circle of life. I lived for a while, had a good run, soon I'll be gone, then I'll fertilize some other life. It's all good. Why is it that that is not our collective attitude? Why are we willing to shut ourselves in our homes, limit our social contacts, restrict our movements? Why is it such a big deal now? And I'd argue because it's always been a big deal. We just tried to put ourselves to sleep Now we've got this rude awakening, and our instincts are kicking in that death is a big deal, that it's not a good thing. And deep down inside, all of us know that. Peter Kreeft, he's a philosopher. He tells the story of a seven-year-old boy whose three-year-old cousin had recently died. Seven-year-old's mother did not believe in God, and she tried to comfort her son with the modern philosophical narrative. And she told him, your cousin has gone back to the earth from which we all come. Death is a natural part of the circle of life. And so when you see the earth put forth new flowers next spring, you can know that it is your cousin's life fertilizing those flowers. The little boy was not having any of that. He ran from the room screaming, I don't want him to be fertilizer. It's hardwired into us that death is not a good thing, not something to be embraced, and we all know that. It's not just true for children, though. Dylan Thomas was a poet in the middle of the last uh, century and he wrote a poem where he urged all kinds of people, not just children, but he urged all kinds of people, people that he talked about as wise men, good men, wild men. He urged them not to give into dying easily. Poem is called do not go gentle into that good night. And there's this repeated refrain where he counsels people rage, rage against the dying of the light. What is that line saying? He's saying, work to stay here as long as you can. Rage against death, it's not good. Little children know it's not good. Poets know it's not good. Other people learn that it's not good. People who may have lived their entire lives not thinking about death, they start to feel its weightiness the closer that it comes. The author Tim Keller, who I've pulled a number of illustrations from this morning, he tells a story of visiting a man in the hospital who was dying of cancer. And this man wasn't quite sure what happens after death, but he was curious why his secular friends were so certain. They were very certain that there was no life after death. And he said to Keller, it's crazy. They mock people for betting their lives on the existence of God by sheer faith, but then they bet the ranch that afterwards there will be nothing, no judgment, nada. He got right to the heart of the problem why we want so badly to avoid seeing death or thinking about it. It's not just that it's unnatural. We all know that. It's not good to be separated from the people that we love. That's instinctive. But the greater problem of death is the fear that it brings. Fear that what that next life might bring, fear that that next life might bring some judgment for how we've lived this one. And the man in that hospital clearly sees that the issue turns around faith on belief on some people believing that there is life after death and some people equally faithful, believing that there is not life after death. Now, what do you do with that? How do you think through that? How do you resolve a clash of faith of one person believing one thing while somebody else believes the exact opposite? How do you resolve that difference when only one of those beliefs can be right and where that really will impact you? Well, one way to do that is to ask, who has better reasons for why they believe what they believe. We'll look at that from the Christian perspective this morning. And the answer that the Christian would give, why do you believe that there's life after death is because of the resurrection of Jesus. That's what we celebrate this morning, that there was an empty tomb that people really saw and that there was a living person who had been killed, who people really saw. And it wasn't just one or two people who saw Jesus once or twice in a dark room somewhere, But for more than a month, Jesus walked around on this earth and was seen by a lot of people, by men and women, by his disciples and by a lot of other people. At one point, by 500 people at one moment. People who were willing to say later that I saw him, people who heard him, people who interacted with him, people who touched him, people who walked with him, people who ate with him, witnesses who were ready to go on record at that time, witnesses who could have been refuted and weren't witnesses that you could believe because they didn't get anything out of that earthly testimony. They didn't become rich. They did not become famous. They didn't kick off great big ministries that pulled in lots and lots of dollars. They didn't get paid huge signing bonuses for their testimony. None of them lived in mansions. Instead, they were hunted down. They were arrested and they stuck to their story every single time, despite being brutally beaten and tortured. History records that nearly every one of Jesus' apostles died in horrible ways because they would not back down, and they would not stop saying, Jesus is alive, and I saw him. Now, if you think about that testimony, there's really only three ways of understanding it. Either one, they were lying, they were deceitful, or number two, they were deceived, they believed something that wasn't true, or number three, they were truthful. If you take each one of those, you start to realize there's only one left. Think about it. Think about the position. Well, they, they were lying. They made it up. Well, it doesn't make sense given what happened to them because who dies for a lie? Nobody does that. You only lie when it's to your advantage, not when it's going to end your life. And not one of these people as they watched everybody else in front of them die. Not one of them said, you know what? that really wasn't true. I was lying. If they were lying, it doesn't make any sense. You would expect at least one of them to admit it. None of them did. So it makes no sense to say they were deceitful. Say, okay, well, maybe, maybe they were deceived. Some people have argued this. They've argued that the disciples were really missing Jesus. And so in a kind of wish fulfillment way, they sat around and they were reminiscing. They started telling each other stories about what it was like to be with Jesus. And as they talked about these stories, you know, it's a little bit like whisper down the lane that the stories got bigger and bigger and bigger, more and more miraculous until they made up the empty tomb and Jesus rising from the dead. It's not that they were intentionally trying to lie, it's that they made themselves believe something that wasn't true. If that was the case, it would have been very easy to dispel that You just grab one of those guys, you take him to the tomb, you roll the stone away and you say, look, see, there he is. There's the body. There's the one who, quote, rose from the dead. Nobody ever did that. This was something actually that both the first Christians and their enemies agreed on. There was no body in the tomb. Nobody ever disputed that. They disagreed on what the absence of the body meant. But the fact that the tomb was empty, everybody agreed on. So if they're not lying and they're not deceived, that only leaves them telling the truth. That when they said, I saw Jesus alive, again, this one who died, they were saying what was really true. And it was on the basis of that belief that the church took off overnight. Something that both the Jewish community and the Roman community at that time tried to suppress and they couldn't. That's the basis for the Christian faith. This confidence that there really is life after death because we know someone who has died and come back and told us about what that life is like. How do you go about deciding if that belief is credible or not? You ask questions, you get answers, you weigh the answers. Frankly, if you're interested in looking into Christianity, there's a lot of other questions you ought to be asking as well. Questions that are good to ask, questions that are right to ask, questions that there are answers to. See, Christianity is not afraid of hard questions. It's not afraid of thoughtful discussions. Don't be afraid to ask the hard questions, but equally don't be afraid to ask the hard questions of other faiths, especially the secular faith, the position that believes that there isn't anything after death. Make sure that you understand that those who hold that position are also holding a certain faith and that they have to give a reason for that faith and defend that faith just as much as any other system of belief. If you're willing to ask, I think you'll discover there's more evidence for believing in life after death than there is that death simply ends. So I want to talk then a little bit about what is this life like, this next life? Scripture does not give us, us a lot of information about it. We catch little glimpses here and there throughout scripture, but not many. And the reason for that is that our faith is not an escapist faith. It's a faith for living here and now in this world. Faith is not so that we can escape a hard life. Faith is so that we can live a hard life better. So when scripture does talk about this future life, it does so to help us live today. That's the apostle John's purpose in Revelation. He was writing to Christians who are really suffering for their faith. Christians who were persecuted, tortured, even killed. And John tells them things that will make their faith stronger. He tells them things that will help them to face the hard things that they're dealing with. One of the things that he thinks is absolutely necessary at the end of his book is to tell him there's a next life coming. I want to help you understand a little bit about what this next life is like. Now, John packs so much into this short passage. He pulls together phrases and themes from the Old Testament. There's no way to cover it all. I'm going to summarize it under five quick headings that we'll go through. So heading number one, God is making everything new. In verse one, John sees a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The earth that we're used to, the current heaven, they have to be replaced if this next life is gonna be any good. Now why is that? It's because both this present heaven and this present earth have had the taint of sin and evil in them. In heaven earlier some of the angels rebelled against God on earth all of humanity has sinned heaven and earth now have been marred by sin it's not enough just to rescue people now and go on with life as though uh, everything was fine why is that because you always have then the reminder of something that wasn't right you're always going to have some sense of what the effects are of what sin and evil had done if you want to get a picture of that think about our present situation Think about what it'll mean when the COVID virus is finally no more, when there's a vaccine, when we can move around freely. Even at that moment, its impact will still be felt. Some of us will have been sick and will remember that. Some of us will have lost people who are close to us. We'll still be grieving that the economy likely be depressed, investments hammered, jobs lost. When someone from the future comes and thinks about this time, they'll refer to it as the COVID-19 time, just like we look at other plagues down through the centuries and focus on them. And all of those reminders are gonna be there even after we've been set free from our homes. And people will then live with the fear and the insecurity of that. Even if you've been vaccinated, you wonder, well, is is it really gonna help? Is it really gonna do something? Will there be another wave? Will there be another virus that I'm not vaccinated for? It'd be very similar to the way that people who lived through the great depression were never the same afterward. I don't know if you've ever had the privilege of speaking to one of them, but that severe deprivation left an imprint on their minds, left a a way of thinking about the world and a way of living about the world that never went away. Now take one of those small little moments of evil, the virus, the great depression, and expand that so that you're including all the aspects of sin and evil. All of the wars, all of the plagues, all of the injustices that have happened on this earth and you realize they've all left a mark. Where you can think about your own self and about how you've been mistreated over the years and how each one of those mistreatments has left a mark. And you realize that there is no way to fully live a free life as long as those reminders are still around. God knows that and that's why he's planning to make everything new. And notice here, it's a very physical newness. The holy city, verse 2, the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven from God. Now to understand that, you have to realize that the book of Revelation is a book of word pictures. It's a book of symbols that point to even deeper meanings than the thing itself. So as you're hearing that, you can't imagine this actual city floating down through the clouds. Instead, what is John telling you? He's telling you that the future dwelling place of God's people is where? It's on this earth. It's not up in heaven somewhere. It's not in between somewhere. You're not floating on clouds. You're not in a disembodied, uh, you're not a disembodied spirit. Instead, you will have a real physical body living on the real physical earth, just like Jesus, when he was raised, had a real physical body. So if you wanna think about what heaven's gonna be like, ask yourself questions about what earth is like now. Do you like to eat? Well, then you're going to love the next life. There's going to be real food, real feasts, tastes that you're not yet begun to imagine because it's a brand new world. Do you like to work? You're going to have real things to do. You're going to work with real stuff that is really meaningful. Do you like to be physically close with people? Do you like to hug? Do you like to touch? Do you absolutely hate social distancing? If that's true, you're going to love this next world. Because the next one is not less real than this one. It's more real. The first earth is going to pass away. It's a, it's a world that's been cursed because of sin. What replaces it is not less physical. It's a new earth, one that's even more than the other one. So that's number one. This next life is going to be brand new. Secondly, this next life will have no evil in it. John says this in several different kinds of ways. First, he says, all external experiences of evil will be just gone. Verse one again, strange phrase, the sea will be no more. Sea was no more. That doesn't mean that there won't be large bodies of water in the new earth, but the sea is a symbol. It's a symbol throughout the Old Testament of the realm of evil, the realm of chaos, and John says that realm will be gone. Verse four, death will be no more. Pain will be no more. All of those things that make you suffer now will be gone from this new heaven and earth. You'll never have to deal with them again. All external evil will be gone and all internal evil will be gone. Verse 27, talking about the city, John says, nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. It's not a city where anything goes, where anybody can do whatever they want. It's a city where only what is good and right is done. And if you're there in that city by definition, you're only gonna do what is good and right because you won't be unclean. Nor chapter 22 verse three will you be accursed. This current world is cursed, it's broken. The next one will not be. And again, if you're there in the city by definition, you bring no curse with you and no curse rests upon you. It's a world without evil. It's a world without sin. It's a world where nothing will ever interrupt your relationship with God again. Nothing will ever get in between you and God. And because there's nothing to get in between you and God, there will be nothing that gets in between you and each other. So first, it's a new world. Secondly, it's without evil. Third, it's a world of wholesome relationships, of healthy community. What do you see coming down to this new earth? Chapter 21, verse 2, it's the new Jerusalem. It's a city a city that holds God's people. And it's a huge city. If you keep reading through the rest of chapter 21, someone goes out and measures the city. It's actually a a bit of a cube. And on each side, it is roughly 1400 miles long. That would be roughly the distance between New York and Miami, huge city, which it would have to be because we've been told earlier in the book of Revelation chapter seven, that God's people form a huge multitude that nobody can number. And so the picture here is of this huge group of people uh, of God described as living where in a city together. Again, it's a picture, a picture of being in close proximity to each other, communally. They see each other daily. They interact with each other. And there's a sense of healthiness to this interaction, goodness to it. Chapter 21, verse 25, The gates of the city will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there which is another way of saying what the, the gates are always open. The city feels secure. It doesn't need to protect itself. It has no enemies. It only has friends and it feels friendly toward those friends. No one takes advantage of each other. No one's afraid of being taken advantage of. Now, can you imagine what it'd be like to live in that kind of a city? You're surrounded by people that you know, you're surrounded by people that you like, surrounded by people that you feel safe with so safe that you never have to close your gates. You never have to lock your door at night. You never have even an idea of what a lock is. They don't make locks there. Why? What would be the point of having a lock? It's a new world without evil, full of secure relationships and fourth, It's a world that gives you everything that you will need in order to live there. Chapter 22, verses 1 to 2 talk about this river of life that's running through the middle of the city. Talk about the tree of life that's planted on both sides. You start to get the idea that this tree is actually a species. Tree of life planted on both sides that provides food and health for everyone. Again, think in pictures here. It's a picture of abundance, a picture of life. Now, the tree of life, that's obvious. That's what we lost back in the Garden of Eden. The tree whose fruit would mean that we would live eternally. But what is this river of life? For that, you have to go back into the old Testament and read in the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 47. He's also talking about the next life, this future restoration. And in chapter 47, he describes a future temple. And there's a curious thing about this temple. There's a stream of water that comes out of it. Now, it just starts out as a trickle, but if you go a little ways down, it turns itself into a stream. And it's a stream that's about ankle deep. And if you keep following that stream down, it gets to your knees. And if you keep going down a little bit further, now that stream is a river, it's up to your waist and just a little bit further. And it's a stream, a river that you can swim in. But it's not just a little river, it's a river that is so large, no one can swim across that river. And this river that starts out as a trickle, runs through the wilderness down to the Dead Sea. It's about 20 miles away. And what's happening down there, the Dead Sea is called dead because nothing lives in it. It's in a depression in the ground so that water only runs into it, not back out of it. And when the water runs into it, it picks up all the minerals along the way and deposits them in the Dead Sea. And so the salinity content of the Dead Sea is huge. Its salt content normally runs about the the 35% range. As a comparison, normal seawater is about 3.5% means that the salt content of the Dead Sea is 10 times what fish can live in. Nothing lives in this, and nothing can because there's no way for that water to ever actually start to uh, leave and to drain the salt content out. And God says all of that's going to change because when this river comes from the temple and it empties into the Dead Sea, Ezekiel tells us that it transforms the sea does not bring more salt. It actually desalinates the sea. So that swarms of fish of many kinds now abound there. It's another word picture. This river of life that you find in Ezekiel, that now shows up here in revelation is talking about the transforming power of God that can take what is dead and bring it to life. That can take you who are dead in your trespasses and sins who had absolutely no hope of this kind of spiritual life and bring you to life. Not only does it bring life, it then nourishes that life so that it lasts forever. This is the world that's coming. It's completely new without any trace of sin or evil filled with healthy relationships because it's filled with transformed people who literally will live forever. And none of that is the best part. The best part, is the God who's woven throughout this section, the God who is the mover behind everything that's happening, the God who makes all things new, the God who brings his people into this new world, the God who wipes away their tears, who takes away everything that makes them cry, the one who brings endless security to them, the one who transforms them and provides them. He does all of that so that he can give them something even better. It's so that he can give them himself. Chapter 21, verse 3, it's so that he can now live with them. Verse 22, so they will see the full strength of his glory. Chapter 22, verse 5, so they'll reign with him forever and ever. He does two things there that you can speak about, either negatively or positively. Negatively, he's taken away everything from the next life that would keep you from him. Positively, he's given you everything that you need in order to be with him. So that what? So the chapter 22, verse four, they will see his face. They'll see his face. This is something that God's people have wanted all the way back to the time before Moses brought the Israelites out of Egypt. Moses was out in the wilderness and he caught a glimpse of the presence of God presence of God in the flame that was trapped in a bush but the flame was burning without burning up the bush Moses saw that presence and that little glimpse that he got was enough to hook him and he wanted more he was never satisfied he asked God later to show him God's glory and God told him this is Exodus 33 I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you but you cannot see my face for no one may see me and live no one and see me and live. Moses had to be satisfied with that, and you don't. You are destined to see what Moses couldn't, the face of God, his glory in full strength, smiling at you, not frowning, delighted to see you, thrilled that you can actually see him and not be destroyed. Why is he thrilled? Because he's so much better than anything that you've ever yet imagined. Think about all those things that he's planning to do for you. All the things that we've already talked about. Give you a new world, purify you of sin, a world that's filled with community that you fit into perfectly. Think about all of those things and realize what? They come from him. They're the tendrils of his mind. He's thought them all up in order to bless you with them. They're mere, what? They're offshoots of himself. He's better than any of them. He's better than all of them. He's the source of all that is good and glorious. He's the source of everything that you love. He's the source of everything that you long for. He's the source of everything that you want. All of those things are good. None of them is better than he is. And he's not satisfied until you have the very best that he has to offer until you have himself. That's why Jesus came to this earth. That's why he went through the agony of the cross. It's why he went to the tomb. It's why he entered into every part of this world's brokenness. It was to set you free from all of the brokenness and bring you into a new world. Are you tired of the brokenness of this world? Of how it's filled with reminders of sin? How it's filled with reminders of evil so that all of your memories have a sting in them? Some sting of how you were mistreated. Some sting of how your your hopes and dreams were all crushed. Are you tired of that? Are you tired of how death, the threat of death just hangs over every part of your life? How you know that every good time that you've ever had will end? How you know that every good thing that you've ever enjoyed will end? How you know that every good relationship that you have will end? You'll leave, they'll leave. Are you tired of that? Or are you tired of other people's brokenness, of how people try to take advantage of you, of how hard people are to work with, of how every relationship that you've ever had has given you more pain and tears than it's brought you joy. For that matter, if you're tired of your own brokenness, how you've brought more pain and tears to others than you've ever brought joy. Are you tired of your addictions, your indulgences, your mean-spiritedness, your temper, your impatience, your pettiness, your radical self-absorption? Are you tired of a world that is filled with sin and evil, a cursed world, a world that keeps you from being the best that you can be, a world that keeps you cut off from the people around you, a world that blinds you so that you don't even see how good God is or desire him? Are you tired of all that? dissatisfied do you find inside of you that longing for something better so does Jesus he was not okay with the way that things were it's not okay with the way that our sin and rebellion had twisted this world and cursed it he made plans to remake everything to take all the evil and all the sin and wipe it away but before he did that he wanted to rescue you so that you were not wiped away to make sure that you actually were part of this next world. And so instead of leaving us to the misery that we had brought on ourselves, Jesus entered into that misery with us. He left heaven, this place of bliss, this place where there were no tears, there was no mourning, there was no death, a place where he was loved and respected, a place where he saw the face of God and he experienced the smile of God all the time. He left that place to come to this broken world that lived under God's frown, a place where he learned firsthand what pain was, what tears were, what it was to mourn. It's a place where none of his relationships worked smoothly. People took him for granted, they tried to use him, they argued with him, they despised him, they rejected him. So they finally arrested him, tortured him and killed him. It was a place where there was a cross waiting for him, where the father didn't smile anymore, where the father turned his face away. Because in that moment on the cross, Jesus became unclean, accursed. He would not have been able to enter into the new heaven and the new earth, could not enter the new Jerusalem. He took God's people's sin on himself because they could not enter into this next world. If it was still attached to them, he took it so that they would be free. He came to this place where there was a cross that ended in a tomb place where he was buried place where it looked like the curse of sin won. but resurrection Sunday tells us that it was a place that could not hold him. That this cursed world was not stronger than he was a place where he rose from the dead because the curse of sin had no hold on him, a place that witnessed him being the first of his kind, the first of a new kind of human being, the kind that was no longer affected by the curse, the kind who could not sin, the kind who will not die. And if the curse of sin has no hold on him, it also has no hold on you if you're part of his people. For whom the sun sets free is free indeed. Free now. And free for all eternity. So if you're tired of the way things are, you just want them to change. Go back to Jesus. Watch what he did in his life, his death, and his resurrection. Because his whole goal was to change everything. And if you're discouraged because of what you see in yourself or what you see around you, if you feel like it's never going to change, look to the empty tomb. Because that's not supposed to happen in a world that's cursed by sin. It's the evidence that Jesus really is making all things new. And if he's able to rise from the dead, there's not a single thing in your life or in mine, that has to remain cursed either nothing has to be the same the empty tomb is the reminder that the curse of sin and death will not win because it cannot win that jesus already lived through every aspect of the curse that came from our sin and triumphed over everyone it's the evidence that his desire to make all things new really will succeed all things in the world in general and all things in you particularly, so that you fit perfectly into the next world. Let me pray for us. Lord God, the stone is rolled away. The tomb is empty. We praise you because you have risen from the grave. Death could not hold you. Sin could not defeat you. And Lord, that gives us hope today. I pray for my brothers and sisters. Lord, that you would give them hope. Hope that wherever they've been this week, whatever they've thought, the kinds of things that they've felt, that that would not be stuff that consumes them. Lord, that they would bring that to you, that they would confess their sins and know that you will free them from the curse of sin and death, just like you have been set free yourself. Lord God, set us free now to praise you, together, thankful for what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.